Hi, friends. This is Brian McLaren. So happy to be with you at Grace Point. Honored to be part of this series on progressive Christianity. Uh, today, I would like to talk to you about Christian identity, progressive Christian identity in a multi-faith world. What does it mean to be a progressive Christian in a multi-faith world like ours? I'll be drawing from my book, Why Did Jesus, Moses, the Buddha, and Muhammad Cross the Road, and from my most recent book, Faith After Doubt. I think especially since September 11th, 2001, many of us are wondering if there can be peace among passionately faithful people of different religious traditions. And my starting point is that we Christians already know how to do two things quite well. Many of us, especially those of us who are raised in a conservative Christian setting, know how to have a strong Christian identity that is hostile toward people of other religions. Now, when I say hostile, I don't mean we necessarily hate them, but the sense that they're wrong and that they may be even, maybe even are of the devil and we are right and we are of God sets us in a hostile relationship with people of other religious traditions. That's the way I was brought up. That's the way many of you may have been brought up. My parents were kind and wonderful people, um, loving to everyone. It didn't matter their religious background. But the religion, the teachings we received meant that we saw everyone as someone who needed to be converted to our religion, or if they stayed with their own, they were going to go to hell. Uh, and so we know what this strong and hostile Christian identity sounds like. We have the only way, you're going to hell, we're God's chosen, you worship false gods, resistance is futile, you'll be assimilated or eliminated, uh, you'll bow your knee to Jesus either willingly or by force. That was sort of the ultimatum that we were giving to people who refused to capitulate and repent and accept our message. Others of us grew up with what we might call a more liberal Christian identity. And um, we learned how to have a weak Christian identity that was tolerant or benign toward people of other religions. Uh, another way to say it is that we'd say, look, if we hold our faith really strongly, then we're going to be hostile. So let's reduce the intensity of our faith. And if you reduce the intensity of your faith, we'll be able to sort of meet on a least common denominator uh, standing. And, and we will be benign or tolerant to one another. Um, and we know what this sounds like. It doesn't matter what you believe. All religions are the same. All roads lead to God. Only sincerity matters. Doctrines divide. So let's not even talk about that. Let's just keep religion private and not bring it up in public. And again, I'm very sympathetic to this approach because I know it's a more peaceful alternative to that combative approach that many of us learned. But I think there's a third alternative better than either of the first two, how to have a strong Christian identity that is benevolent toward other religions, not just tolerant, not just benign, but benevolent. So that 
the stronger our Christian identity, the greater the benevolence that we show to all people, whatever their religious background. This approach might sound like, like this, because I follow Jesus, of course I love you. Because I follow Jesus, I move toward the other, not away, toward the other in love and respect and humility. I break down walls of hostility. I don't erect them. I stand with you in solidarity and your human dignity. Because I'm a Christian, I believe you are made in God's image. Because I'm a Christian, I'm your servant, I'm your ally, I'm your friend, I'm your neighbor. Because I'm a Christian, I practice human kindness and you're safe in my presence. That's what a strong and benevolent Christian identity, I believe, would sound like. Now, there is a popular misconception out there, and that is that our religious differences keep us apart. It doesn't necessarily have to be true. Our religious differences could make us curious. Our religious differences could attract us to one another to see what we could learn from one another. Uh, the reason I think our religious differences keep us apart is actually not because of the differences, it's because of one thing that nearly all religious communities have in common, and that is that we build strong religious identities through hostility to the other. The way we be a strong us is by creating a them to, uh, to fear or to distinguish ourselves from. Nobody said this better than James Allison, the brilliant Catholic priest and theologian. He said, give people a common enemy and you will give them a common identity. Deprive them of an enemy and you will deprive them of the crutch by which they know who they are. So this sense that we create a strong in-group by hostility to the other may have given some survival value to the in-groups, to the tribes or clans or nations or religious communities. But when we now live in a world of biological, chemical and nuclear weapons, stirring up hostility among various in-groups against one another, now I believe threatens our survival. The philosopher Robert Wright said it like this, Historically, the amity or goodwill within the group has often depended on enmity or hatred between groups. When you get to the global level, that won't work. That cannot be the dynamic that holds the planet together. What would be unprecedented is to have this kind of solidarity and moral cohesion at a global level that did not depend on the hatred of other groups of people. And so, that's the question we're grappling with today. Can Christians today build a new kind of identity based on hospitality and solidarity, not hostility to the other? Can we have a strong and benevolent Christian identity? Can that vision of the Hebrew prophets, of the lion lying down with the lamb, can that become true of us? You, you'll see in this, uh, in this upper right-hand uh, painting here, that image of the animals living together in peace. And then across on the other side is an image of people living together in peace. You know, Isaiah wasn't really concerned about lions and lambs lying down together. 
he used that image to say, can Christians and Muslims, or we would say it today, can Christians and Muslims get together? Can Christians and Jews get together? Back in his day, it would have been, can Jews and Assyrians uh, stop killing each other, slaughtering each other, attempting genocide against one another? Can human beings learn to live in harmony or must our religious differences always divide us? In my book, Why Did Jesus, Moses, the Buddha, and Muhammad Cross the Road, I talked about five challenges we face. Um, first is the historical challenge of learning what's happened in our past that put us on a momentum, a trajectory of hostility to one another. Second is the doctrinal challenge. Learning how our doctrines actually set us up to feel superior or endangered or persecuted by the other. Uh, then there's liturgical challenge. Um, uh, the challenge of facing how our rituals can give us a supremacist or a holier than thou or clean versus unclean status toward other people that sets us up for hostility. Then a missional challenge where many of us were brought up with this idea that the mission of Christians is to turn everyone else we can into a Christian. Uh, and if they won't, we see them as our opponents and the enemy. Um, and then the fifth of these challenges is the one I'd like to talk about in a little more depth today. I, I call it the spiritual challenge. Um, I first addressed this challenge in my book, Naked Spirituality. But this is really at the heart of my most recent book, uh, Faith After Doubt. In Faith After Doubt, I synthesized the work of a number of theorists and scholars in human development, faith development, spiritual development. And I propose a four-step model of faith and spiritual development. The first stage is simplicity. This is the stage of dualism. We learn this as children, good, bad, us, them, safe, dangerous, poisonous, nourishing, friend, enemy, uh, stranger, uh, associate. All of these dualisms we learn to put people in these two categories or to put things in categories. And of course, this is necessary. Uh, and a lot of people stay in, in simplicity for their whole lives, especially because their religions tell them, you have to stay here. This is what it means to be a good member of our faith. So Christian dualism, this simplicity of Christian faith is very, very widespread. Uh, but some of us grow beyond it. So often we're condemned for doing so, but we grow beyond it. Think of rings on a tree. If simplicity is that innermost ring, the next ring we expand, we include it, but we expand beyond it into complexity. This is the stage of pragmatism where we're learning how to make things work in a complicated world. Those simple dualisms, us, them, you know, everything is, is in binaries, that stops working. And now we, we realize, yeah, the world's more complex than that. I've got to figure out how to navigate a very complex world. That's complexity. A lot of people stay there their whole lives. Um, more and more of us, I think, at a younger and younger age, get pushed out of both simplicity and complexity, and we find ourselves in perplexity. The stage where we realized that that stage one dualism and the stage two pragmatism 
are actually causing great harm, actually perpetuate injustice. And so we become, we become uh, skeptical of those simple dualisms. And we become skept uh, skeptical of this sort of can-do pragmatism that sometimes is very effective at doing very harmful things. So now comes the stage of relativism, of skepticism, of deconstruction. And many people stay in stage three for their whole lives. Now, I would guess that in your congregation, you would have people in each of these three stages. And I wanna say there's nothing to be ashamed of. If that's where you are, that's just fine. There are important things to learn, important skills to develop in each stage. But more and more of us are feeling a calling, an invitation to an even bigger ring. And I'll call that stage four or harmony, where we begin to see things whole, where we look to integrate the skills of simplicity with the skills of complexity, with the skills of perplexity, and even expand beyond those so that we learn to see the world with non-dual seeing. We learn to see the world where we understand that we're all related, we're all connected, we're all part of one whole. And in that context, we need to learn to get along and to live in harmony. And so you could take people in any religion who are in these stages, and even though the religions would be different, they would be very similar to their counterparts at the, in the same stage. Uh, whether you're Christian, Muslim, Jewish, Hindu, Buddhist, atheist, if you're in simplicity, then you, you're going to say, our group is right, their group is wrong. And that's, it's not because you're being bad that you do that. It's the only way the world looks to you in stage one. You move into stage two, into complexity, and you start to see, oh, there's a lot. These religions are really different. I guess they all are after something. They all do something for somebody. Ours is probably better, but anyway, we got to figure out how to make things work. I've got to do business with people of other religions. Some of my teachers in school are of other religions. I got to get along with people. Uh, somehow. Uh, and this is the great stage of tolerance, how we can be tolerant of one another. In perplexity, we, we almost flip this around and we say, I see how those some people in simplicity and those people in complexity are creating all kinds of trouble. I think that all religions are wrong or dangerous, and we need to see through them all. And we, we look at every religion and we can see its faults and its dangers. But then if we come to harmony, we develop the ability to see that our religions have value and I will seek to inhabit mine in a loving way toward all. I won't lose the skills of stage three, but instead of trying to see through other religions, I'll try to see the radiance that they bring to the world. I'll try to see the gifts that they can possibly bring to the world. And I will live my religion as it can bring gifts to the world. Uh, my dear friend and colleague, Richard Gore says, uh, quotes a Latin phrase from the Middle Ages, quid quid recipitur ad modem recipientes recipitur, meaning whatever is received is received in the manner of the receiver. And so a person who's in stage one can only see the wavelengths of light, so to speak, 
that he has the capacity to see. A person at stage two is going to see everything through the tinted glasses of stage two and so on. And this is why when we come to a stage where we are capable of harmony, then we can receive things in a harmonious way. Uh, now, I know a lot of people immediately start thinking about the, the doctrinal issues that, that we fight about, both within the Christian religion and Christians fight about with members of other religions. Is there a way we can learn to hold our beliefs or our teachings deeply, significantly, but to do it in harmony? Could we rediscover our doctrines as healing teachings? That's at the core of that word doctrine. It's where it's related to the word doctor. What might happen if we took a second look at our core doctrines and we could recycle them, repurpose them, see them, receive them in a fresh way as a different kind of receiver, and then hold those beliefs, not in hostility, but in harmony for healing, so that we could begin to bind together what has been torn apart, which is, of course, the real meaning of the word religion. I'd like to just look at very, very quickly at several of our teachings that have been used to divide. Um, the teaching of creation. Uh, of course, we have a lot of people who want to argue about evolution versus creationism. So whenever those first chapters of Genesis come up, people are ready for an argument. Uh, but what about if we read that story of creation, not needing to take it literally, but to say this story is telling us that we are all, all human beings, are part of one story. We all come from the same source. We all live here on the same planet. We're all descendant from you know, the, the original peoples. And that means that we're all related. That means that every war is a civil war because really we're just fighting against our own kind. Not only are other humans our relatives, but so are all creatures. We are part of this beautiful creation, the dust that makes us up into which God breathes the breath of life in the Genesis story is the dust of this earth, which now in modern science we know once was stardust. And so now this teaching of creation helps us see our connectedness so that we're part of one story with all people. You, you could take the doctrine of original sin there are few doctrines that have been used more brutally to justify the, the harmful treatment of other people. This idea that all people are doomed for hell and then certain people get an exemption card and which leaves all the other people doomed for hell. Uh, could that teaching ever be reclaimed in a spirit of harmony? If we're people in harmony, could, could we receive this teaching in a more generous way. Well, what if the real original sin, which by the way is a term you never find in the Bible, but what if this idea of original sin is not about eating an apple off a tree, but it's about the desire to play God over other people, to be superior over other people, to dominate over other people so that you have the right to judge them and consider them inferior suddenly that doctrine of original sin can become a healing teaching to tell us that as soon as we start saying, we're better, our religion is better, we're superior, we should dominate, 
but now we're falling into the sin that leads to all other sins. The teaching of the incarnation, many Christians have used this, especially against, uh, against Muslim and Jewish people to say, we believe that God became a human being in Jesus Christ and you don't. That means we're right and you're wrong. Well, what if we were to, instead of use that doctrine in that unharmonious and hostile way, we were to use that doctrine to say, the belief that God poured God's self into the human body of Jesus says that God is in solidarity with all human flesh, not just Christian flesh, not just Jewish flesh, all human flesh, that God has made God's own being connected to us. And so we should have similar solidarity with one another. Not only that, but God's desire isn't just for God to be poured into one human being, but that each of us could be parts of that human body of Christ so that God will want God's love and grace to shine through to us, to all people, no discrimination, no exception. The same with the, te the teaching of the deity of Christ. This has been, a, oh, if, you, if we knew the stories of how Jews have been uh, persecuted, tortured, killed, ghettoized, because they wouldn't say, uh, they wouldn't conform to our teachings about the deity of Christ. It just, it breaks your heart when you learn about this. But then you think, could this, could we hold this teaching? Could we receive this teaching in a way that made us say that if, if Jesus reflects the face and heart of God, how many people did Jesus hate? How many people did Jesus torture? How many people did Jesus kill? How many people did Jesus refuse to heal because they were of another religion? And suddenly we say, if that's the way Jesus is, that's the way God is. Because Jesus refused no one. Jesus hated no one. Jesus was prejudiced against no one. We even have a story in the Gospels of when a woman of another religion and uh, ethnic background comes to Jesus and at first he responds, uh, I, I'm, I'm here for my own people, not for you. But he, we, the, the gospels let us see Jesus, see her humanity, and he heals her as well. The healing teaching of the Holy Spirit uh, has been used uh, to say, we have the spirit, you don't. And of course, the irony is anyone who wants to take that realm of superiority is not manifesting the fruit of the spirit. No, the, 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 on the day of Pentecost, we have this amazing revelation that when God's spirit pours out into people, God speaks other people's languages. So God doesn't have a favorite language, but God's spirit is working among people of all cultures and languages. The doctrine of the Trinity, again, has been abused as, as, a, as a doctrinal weapon against people for so long. What if we rediscover the doctrine of the Trinity to say that this doctrine says that within God, there is diversity. Fatherness is not the same as sonness, is not the same as spiritness, or the giver is not the same as the gift or the spirit of giving. But these differences exist, but they're differences that are not divisions. In fact, they're differences that enhance the unity. Could we then manifest in our lives this kind of 
relationality, to say the difference does not need to be division. Uh, the, the healing teaching of the inspiration of scripture. Again, scripture is often used as a weapon uh, to prove other people wrong. But what if we use the Bible as a way of saying, oh, the truth about God comes out through conversation and people at this stage don't have it all and people at this stage don't have it all. There's always more to learn. How could the story continue in us? And how could we be part of the ongoing conversation where we continue to stay open to the new things that could be revealed to us? And then I'll just close with perhaps one of the most dangerous and destructive doctrines of all, the doctrine of election or chosenness, the idea that God chooses some for elite privilege and rejects others for damnation, to be left behind. What if we actually went back and received this from that stage four heart of harmony? We'd go back and we'd read Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It, what we Christians have done so often in our stage one simplicity is we've only taken half of what's here. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and I will curse anyone who curses you. That's, we, we take that and we leave everything else. But no, it's I will make you a great nation so that all the other nations can be blessed. I will bless you so that you can be a blessing. And even that somewhat troubling phrase, who, the one who curses you, I will curse. Do you understand what's, what's being said here is, Abram, I'm going to send you out from where you're within your in-group to where you will be a minority. You will be a refugee, an alien, an outsider, a, a religious minority. And whoever isn't good to you, I will mark those people out and I will tell the truth about them. They're not behaving the way I want them to behave. I want them to treat religious minorities with kindness and dignity and respect. And you're the test case. And the ultimate goal of God in this is so that everybody will be blessed, not exclusive blessing and privilege and calling, but well, like we've seen recently, some people receive the blessing of medical training, not so that they can hole up and be healthy in a little circle, they become the doctors and nurses and first responders who do everything they can to help the rest of us be healthy. They're blessed not to the exclusion of the rest of us, they're blessed for the benefit of the rest of us. And so my brothers and sisters, if you want to have a progressive Christian identity, a new kind of Christian identity, then don't just stay in simplicity, allow yourself to grow into complexity and don't just stay in complexity, allow yourself to embrace perplexity and don't just stay in perplexity, but allow yourself to widen your aperture of your love in harmony so that you can take all the blessings you receive from your faith in Christ, from your Christian identity, from all the resources of the Christian tradition and become a blessing 
to all people of all faiths, no exceptions, including the blessing of being open and receptive to the blessings they will bring to you. I hope that's helpful. I hope that helps you have a sense of how if we can deal with the spiritual challenge of growing toward harmony, of having hearts of non-discriminatory, revolutionary, healing, and harmonious love, then we will face the very real historical, doctrinal, liturgical, and missional challenges. And we can be agents of peace in this world. I'm, I'm so honored by your interest and your attention. And I hope that this will help you to not just have a different understanding, but a different heart and a different way of holding your Christian identity that gives you a point of contact with all people of all human identities because we are part of that one great big story of God's great big love. <laughs>